Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellum podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. Um, I'm Marcel. I'm not Ross. I just remembered Ross from Friends with his high. Um, yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, our family has been here at Life in Deep Ellum for, for almost four years, um, and today is Communion Sunday, as you may have gathered from the scenery in front of you. We're going to be taking communion together after the sermon. And the first thing I, I want to say is that I'm going to try to convince you that I'm not preaching about communion. Uh, instead, what I'd like to do is speak about community. Community. As expressed in the experience of communion. Potato, potato. Basically, the, the movement by which we come to the table. And my hope for this reflection is that by the end, we will feel invited into communion as a step into community life. So not as, um, you know, a, a small part of the Sunday worship service, but as a way of living. For those of you who are new to Life in Deep Ellum, uh, and you can look this up on the website if you want, we describe ourselves as a creedal community. And basically what that means is that we go back to the Apostles' Creed as a kind of like a hub, like, like on a bicycle wheel. You have a hub and a bunch of spokes connecting to it, right? Uh, so the Apostles' Creed is a hub that connects us to each other, and connects us to a long line of people that, like Mary, Mar Martha's sister in the Gospels, uh, tried to sit at Jesus' feet, tried to walk in Jesus' footsteps, and tried to abide by God's word, however it appears. And that's what we try to do here, and then we fail, and then we try it again. So that's life in Deep Ellum. Uh, being a creedal community means that the people who hang out here tend to have incredibly diverse perspectives about what a sacrament is or is not. And you may ask me, Marcel, what is the sacrament that you speak of? Uh, sacrament is a fancy word that comes from Roman law. Um, and it basically it denotes an oath, an allegiance, a contract, a promise. In the words of St. Augustine, uh, who was a pastor, bishop, theologian, person from North Africa uh, in the 4th century, 5th century, depending on how you're counting. A sacrament is the visible form of an invisible grace. It's in, a, another, in another passage, he says, a sacrament is the sign of a sacred thing. Because a lot of times we, we, we can't see sacred things but we can see the effects of, the signs of um, these sacred things, one of which is the gift of God's grace and thus a sacrament, a visible form of an invisible grace. And, and one sacrament that Christians have held various perspectives on over the centuries is communion, a.k.a. the Eucharist. What is the Eucharist, you may ask? I'm glad you asked. Uh, Eucharist is a fancy word, a lot of words today. Uh, it's a fancy word for communion. 
And it comes from the Greek um, eus and kadisestai. Okay, so like many other words, we use two words put together. One of them means grateful or well or good, and the other is a favor or grace. You put them together. In the Greek, you have eukaristeo, which means to thank or to be thankful. And that's the, the root of the, of the word eucharist that is the term that we use for the thing that we're doing. Uh, now, if you're new to Christianity, and if you're not, you won't be surprised. I need to tell you something. Christians... Christians adhere to a long, time-honored, venerated tradition of not agreeing on what the Eucharist is or just or isn't. So that, that is the tradition. Okay, seriously. We just, we can't seem to figure out what the deal is. But we can certainly disagree to disagree, which is what we do. And that's... Yeah, we just disagree to disagree. It's a classic pattern, and, and, and that's, that's been the case throughout Christianity. There's a really good, good example of this. Uh, you all may have heard of Martin Luther, right, the, the German grouchy reformer guy. And uh, Luther, in, in 1517, he posted a bunch of theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg in Germany. And that's how you would make a point in those days. It, it was kind of like a poster culture, so he had these ideas about the church, and he posted them literally posted them onto the door of the church. People read them. They didn't like it. Other people liked it. Big deal. Um, and this thing that called the Reformation kind of boiled over. And there was a point where this really fancy-schmancy dude called Philip Hess, who was Margrave of one of the German regions, basically someone in authority said, you know what, let's try to create a dialogue here. And he invited Luther, along with this other reformer, a guy called Ulrich Zwingli, who was like a hardcore Reformation person. And he said, okay, we're going to put both of you at a table um, and we're going to watch you argue and come to some sort of common ground uh, in the city of Marburg in Germany. So, you know, they came over with these bunch of people watching doctors of the church and they sat down and Luther and Zwingli, they argued 14 different theses, 14 different lines, if you will. And they agreed on 13, but couldn't agree on the 14th. Can you guess what that was? Communion. They just couldn't do it. They just couldn't do it. And that was in 1529. Still the fact. A long tradition of disagreeing to disagree. There's a, uh, one of the prominent church historians, Darwin McCullough, says, such was the bitterness between Luther and Zwingli after that, that in 1530, the following year, Luther told his followers that they should get married and have their children baptized in Catholic churches rather than Zwinglian churches. And the Catholics were the one that Luther was attacking. And he's like, well, it's still better than what those people are doing. So, I, I think I've made the point. Christians have a hard time agreeing about the meaning of communion. But we keep coming back to it. You know, a lot of times in, in religious traditions, when something just doesn't work out, you kind of drop it. But we keep coming back to it. And everyone does it, even as they disagree to disagree. 
So we're all doing it. We just can't figure out what it means. We keep coming back to the supper, to the Lord's Supper. Why? Well, because even if we can't understand its significance quite adequately, even if we can't wrap our heads around what it means point by point, we understand instinctively that communion is a deep expression of community. And when we do this, we're following that sacred instinct. That gathering around the table is a deep expression of community life. I was talking to my brother who pastors a church in Norway, in Oslo, which is similar to ours in, in the sense that there's people from all over. It's an international church. People don't agree about what communion is. And, and I was talking to him on the phone, and he was like, well, Marcel, you know, that's kind of it. Instead of bickering about what it means, how about we just do the thing? And I'm like, okay, that's fair. So my, my dealings with community, I mean, sorry, commu- see, I'm mixing them up. With communion today, they're infused with ecumenical intentions. What is ecumenical, you might ask? <laughs> okay, that's three words already, Marcel. You can't, that's just like too much. Um, ecumenism is a movement towards Christian cooperation. So part of ecumenism is saying, okay, we can fight about what it means, but can we just do it together? Can we just do it together? I want to connect us with each other and with the Christian tradition of gathering at the table instead of fostering suspicion about everyone else's understanding of communion, of communion, not community, communion. And I'm reminded of the language, uh, there's a a prof at Princeton Theological Seminary, George Hunsinger. Uh, He wrote a book about communion and uh, ecumenism and he says he's, he's got two theological perspectives. One is what he calls enclave theology, right? So uh, it's, it's based narrowly in a single tradition that seeks not to learn from other traditions and to enrich them but instead to topple and defeat them or at least to withstand them. Its limited agenda makes it difficult for it to take other traditions seriously and to deal with them fairly. And that's That's the stance, the theological stance, where you're wrong and everyone else, no, you're right, and everyone else is wrong. (laughs) And to be honest, that's the stance that Christian congregations, denominations, and traditions most assume. Even when we look friendly, we're really out to convince you that we're right and you're just, well, you're just wrong. I mean, just like, if you could just see it, right? But Hunsinger, he contrasts this this niche theology with what he calls ecumenical theology, which presupposes that every tradition in the church has something valuable to contribute, even if we cannot yet discern what it is. And I'm reminded of the words of a friend of mine, also a theologian, who says, either one of us is right and everybody else is screwed, or most of us have figured out something and we need to share that with each other. I I like that better than the alternative, because if we're wrong, man, are we wrong. Um, In order for us to step into this ecumenical perspective today, I'm not going to, I'm going to bypass all that talk about what this thing actually means. I want to focus on a central aspect, a core aspect of the experience of communion, which is the table, the table. 
Christian scripture is full of allusions to tables, meals, suppers, dinners, grilled fish on the beach, bread, wine. You get the idea. There's this notion that the table is particularly important, both in the first and in the second testaments. And this is true both in regards to the table for God's people, this broad group of God's people, such as the people of Israel, the people of God, and specific instances. Particular stories, like Jesus' multiplication of fish and bread in Matthew 15, right? They have, you know, this kid shows up with a couple fish, a couple loaves of bread, and Jesus serves a bunch of people, and there's still some left at the end. Um, In Scripture, the table is referenced both in, in this kind of metaphorical sense and literally, such as in the narrative of the Last Supper or many other stories. And there are, there are like classic Bible stories... And here I pull out the pastor's kid went to church, was subjected to flannel graphs uh, when I was a kid. And I I keep referencing those because, you know, you know what that is, right? The flannel board. And you talk about Moses and you stick a Moses figure and the sheep, right? Very cutting edge technology. It's great. And a couple of these passages pop out that talk about the table. One of them is Isaiah 55. It's one of my favorite um, scriptural texts ever. Um, Isaiah says, Hear everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your earnings for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make you an everlasting covenant. So that's God inviting people to a table. A free table. An open table. Another classic text uh, is Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 which says, Listen, I am standing by the door knocking. If you hear my voice... And open the door. I will come in and eat with you and you with me. Again, invitation to the meal. In Luke 14, there's a parable of a great banquet. And Jesus told this parable and said, um, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And he talks about this person who prepared a feast and invited a bunch of people. None of them came. And then the owner of the house ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. And the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. The people who show up at the banquet are not the people who were first invited. But they're the people who need to be there. The people who need the food. The people who need the company. There there are many, many others of these examples in scripture. And above all sits this portrait of the Last Supper. The event upon which our own communion practice is based. It appears in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. And it happens in in the context of this German, of this, not German, I was thinking of Luther. This Jewish festival, the Passover festival which itself had a long tradition. 
the tradition of the table. We are at an important moment in our congregational journey here, here at Life in Develop. We've been through a lot in the past few years. Things look very different now than they did even two, three years ago. Rachel and Joel, they pastored Lied into its early adulthood. Baranda led us through some really tough times. And now Jenna is helping us to look forward as we turn 21, which will be a thing, by the way. Yep. Many faces we were used to seeing on Sundays are no longer with us. And we rejoice at every new face among us. And we want you to know that. Wherever you come from, however long you've been with us, I'd like to say this. It's important for us to come together at the table in this season. And when I talk about this communal table, I mean it both literally and metaphorically, just like scripture. Gathering at the table together begins with an intentionality. It begins with a movement, a gesture towards the other. When we move towards one another, we break isolation. We turn off Netflix. We knock on each other's doors. So I'm not just talking about this communion liturgy here today. I'm saying, make your way into each other's homes. Disturb each other's evening schedules. Make time to make food for one another and break the mold of your own routine by allowing others into your kitchen. Meet somewhere in Deep Ellum. Jenna told us the sticky shoe story last week, which I thought was great. Right? Maybe you'll step on some gum when you walk down Commerce. We have several covenant partners here at Life in Deep Ellum that are experienced the joy and sleep deprivation that comes with a newborn. Get them food, y'all. Right? I'm reminded of, of, of Randy's family this week. So stop by. Drop something off. Maybe if they're awake, they'll chat with you for five minutes. As we prepare for communion today in remembrance, in remembrance of Jesus' own habit of sitting with his disciples, I want to share with you a few reasons why I think it's vital that, that we do this in all of these situations, symbolic and practical. First, the communal table is a place of hospitality. It's a place of conversation. At this table, there, are, there is room for those who are just walking in. There is no dress code. There is no common language. There is no preferred cuisine. It's a mashup experience. Notice how both the Isaiah and Revelation passages that I read reference listening. Right? They reference listening. So Isaiah, incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. Revelation, listen. I am standing at the door. When we come to the communal table, we come to hear stories of joy. We come to hear stories of suffering. We learn to cry with those who cry and cry out for those that have been silenced. We learn to listen even when we're mostly concerned with ourselves. And we learn that in the process, we can live for the flourishing of others. The umbrella, the umbrella, the umbrella. At this table, we learn to share. We start letting our guard down because the food and the company, they warm our hearts. And we perhaps begin to, begin to share our own journeys. As we eat together, we learn to be vulnerable. I'm reminded of the words of St. Eugene Peterson. God bless his heart. 
who said, Is there anything else we do as frequently and simply that combines necessity and pleasure so unselfconsciously, unpretentiously, and commonly as preparing and eating a meal with family or friends or guests? Our common humanity is out in the open as we eat together. We need to eat to stay alive. And at this meal, we're all eating the same thing. Vegetables, fruits, breads. The act of eating together has a wonderful way of obscuring, at least temporarily, self-importance. Distinctions and reputations recede to the sideline in the act of eating a common meal. So the communal table is a place of hospitality, of conversation, of vulnerability, of listening. And because it is a place of hospitality and conversation, it's a place for reconciliation. That's my second point. As we dine together, we learn to see the world through the eyes of others. And we start to recognize that we don't have things as figured out as we thought. Right? We learn to say, huh, I never thought about it that way, the way you're describing. And when we do that, we understand that our, not, our own experience is not the golden standard for everyone else's experience. And in the process of reconciliation, we reconcile our stories to those of our fellow table mates and we begin to weave them together. We begin to be a part of each other's stories. And Jesus is present at this table. Just as Jesus reconciles humanity to God, it's a presence that reconciles us to each other. And because the communal table is a place of reconciliation, it becomes a celebration. Right? When you enjoy that, that coming together, that weaving together of the stories, the table becomes a party table. Where we learn to appreciate uh, the gifts of others and we uplift them, we celebrate them. We celebrate what people bring, their stories, their humor, their own family recipes. When we gather at the table, we remind ourselves and others that this is worth doing. It's worth opening up. It's worth stepping out of our well-curated life bubble. It's worth being part of a community. In the words of theologian Anne Elvey, it's a vocation, it's a calling to communion. The abundance of the table is inseparable from Jesus' self-giving through which we become one with others and share their fate. We become responsible for each other. And in realizing what this means, and this is my final point, we commit to the community. So, while the communal table is open, has no dress, dress code and no standard cuisine, it's a place that you come to. And as you weave your stories with those who are with you at the table, commitment happens. And this, this commitment is a response. It's an, ah, ah, it's, it's an aha moment when we realize that our lives would not be the same without these other stories. And as we learn to value each other, the opportunity arises to commit to this table, to this community. That is exactly the case 
in the ministry of Jesus. He invites to table, and these become invitations to a journey. It happened with Zacchaeus. You know the story, the dude in the tree, right? He's like, come on down. I got to go to your house because I'm hungry. Things happen. It happened with the disciples at the shores of the Sea of Tiberias when they were all tired. And Peter said, I'm going to go fishing. And the other disciples said, well, I'm going to go with you. And then they catch nothing. And when they come back, Jesus is grilling fish on the shore. And he says, are you hungry? Come have a bite to eat. It happened at the Last Supper. Sitting at the table with Jesus and sitting at the table with each other changes us. We sit at the table to share, to remember, to grieve, to cry, to laugh, to nourish. In the process, something deep happens, something crucial. We rehearse love. We rehearse trust. And when I say rehearse, I mean rehearse. Because we don't have this love and trust thing figured out. In fact, I don't think we're particularly good at it. We're good at being nice. We're good at smiling as we play our cards kind of close to our chest. But I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Uh, This is one of the Bible's most well-known passages, right? And what I think is uh, one of Paul's more inspired moments. There are others that I think are less inspiring. Uh, Yeah, whatever, man. I... I, I, I only have this by memory in Portuguese. Ainda que eu falasse as línguas dos homens e dos anjos e não tivesse amor, seria como metal que soa ou como sino que time. If I spoke the languages of the peoples and the angels, if I had not love, I would be empty. And you've heard this, 1 Corinthians 13:8. Love never fails. Right? It's a great t-shirt line. One of the problems with this translation, love never fails, and this is true not only in English but in other translations as well, is that we, we might end up thinking of love, of love on a, a kind of a, a binary, like a pass-fail kind of deal, like an on or off, like either love fails or it doesn't fail. I don't think that's it. I was having a, a conversation with a, with a friend, uh, John Thornburg, he's a Methodist pastor. We were discussing how Different translations of 1 Corinthians 13 carry differently. Love never ends, Revised Standard Version. Love never falls away, the New Matthew Bible. Love goes on forever, the Living Bible. Charity is never lost, the Jubilee Bible. It seems to me that if you boil down all of these translations into a nice sauce, a tasty sauce, it's this idea that love persists. It persists in love. It rehearses its way back to the table. It's not something you decide to do once. It's a practice, a discipline, an open invitation. It's something you come back to. Last week, Jenna reminded us that our best story happens when our individual stories, the story of Deep Ellum, and God's story intersect. And she said, you showing up at the gathering matters. You're investing in writing the story. You're coming back to the table. It matters that we're here. It's a concrete gesture with concrete consequences. Coming to the table is an incarnational gesture. It's an embodied 
gesture. It was embodied for Jesus who, who became flesh to dine with the disciples and it continues to be an embodied invitation for us as we rehearse our way back into community again and again as we will do today. And the beautiful thing about God's table, especially as expressed in communion in the Last Supper, is that that Last Supper resonates with all of our tables, in our homes, on Main Street, wherever we gather. Because wherever we gather, Jesus gathers with us and says, I will be with you always especially, in my opinion, when we sit together at table. Amen.